Good morning. We are in a new series today called uh, Out of Context. And uh, by the way, I want to introduce you to my friend Willie. So uh, this is Willie the Pineapple. I'm, I think Willie's going to be safer on the floor. But uh, he, was, he was the mascot this week for our group as they went to student camp. It was a great camp. Willie survived at least one kidnapping um, and was courageously rescued. Uh, so you know, it was a tough week. He was constantly in danger. That's sort of like us, right? We live in a, a harsh world. Uh, it seems like there's always something out to get us, and sometimes it's ourselves. Sometimes it's our own mistakes. Uh, so we're going to talk about, does God give us more than we can handle, or does he clear the way for us and make it where everything goes smoothly? Uh, by the way, before we get into the Word, just wanted to say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, like many of you, I was blessed with an amazing father. Uh, my dad is still with us, and, and you know, I, I learned a lot from him. I learned that God is real, that following him and putting him first, God that is, is the key to life. I learned that I matter, that I'm important. Uh, I learned what it meant to be a faithful husband, uh, what it meant to learn right from wrong, and there are consequences when you do the wrong thing. My dad was very good about making sure I faced those consequences. He taught me a lot of skills. Many of the skills he tried to teach me, I didn't learn, right? I just didn't pay attention. But my dad is a good man. He still, still is an example to me as a husband and a father. And all through life, I've bumped into people, teachers, coaches when I was younger, um, Sunday school teachers and other adults, and, and, and as an adult, coworkers, friends, neighbors, people who God used to reaffirm the things that my father taught me when I was a kid. And in a way, that's our job as Christians, because our Heavenly Father is the perfect Father. He's, no matter what kind of dad you had growing up, you had a perfect Heavenly Father who wanted you to know this is the way to walk, this is the way to live, this is the path to joy and peace and, and patience and, and fulfillment. And we're supposed to be the people who come alongside and say, hey, listen, what your Heavenly Father says is true, let me show you. And we teach these people new skills. We teach these people, uh, we encourage them in times of hardship. We, we comfort them in times of pain. We, we come alongside and we share, share our faith in what Christ has done for us. And we call those transforming relationships. And that's our job as a church. See, if all we do is come and sit here and do church once a week on Sunday morning, what good does that do to the rest of the world? We have to go out from here and make a difference in the lives of others. We cannot hope that we're going to see every lost person in Montgomery County come and sit in this church or another church in our, in our community and hear the gospel, that's probably not going to happen. But they will bump into you because they are your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors and your acquaintances. So look for those opportunities to say, I'm going to invest in this person. I'm going to pray for this person. I'm going to look for an opportunity to make a difference in his or her life, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, whether they're your age or, or a different age, just look for an opportunity to make a difference in their lives. So we're in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 this morning. Uh, for six years, I was the pastor of South Avenue Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. And it was a great, great church. Yeah, shout out for South Avenue, right? Uh, great church full of wonderful people. Uh, the associate pastor there when I got there, he'd been there about 20 years when I got there and is still there to this day is uh, Jim Overton, Dr. Jim Overton. Great, great man. Him and his wife, uh, uh, Linda, are just institutions in that church and in that community. Jim had a brother, Bob, an older brother who's since gone on to heaven, uh, who was also a pastor. And Bob had a great, very dry sense of humor. 
And this is how we would talk to Bob. He would call the church office once a week or so and ask to talk to Jim. And when he did, he always greeted us the same way. Whoever answered the phone, whether it was me, whether it was Donna, our secretary, or somebody else, we would say, hello, South Avenue Baptist Church. And he would say, hey, is Jim sober today? Every single time. Every single time. And it never stopped being funny because if you knew Jim Overton, not only was he a minister, he was like the... the uh, poster for this is the way you should act if you are a minister. I mean, his life was genuine. He and Linda both, just the most genuine Christian people. You could follow them around for a year and never find anything that you could go, aha, I caught you. They were just people who were just lived out their faith so genuinely. And, and so that's why it was so funny, right? But if, imagine that for whatever reason, I was out of the office and, and Donna was away from her desk and some random person who was brand new in the church, maybe a delivery driver or something, was just sitting there in the office and the phone rang. Imagine that person picked up the phone and heard, is Jim sober? What would they think? It wouldn't be funny to them. They would think, oh, okay, so the associate pastor here is a raging alcoholic who occasionally gets drunk on the job. Now, that's a very different thing, right, than the actual truth. So you see the power of context. If you know Jim and if you know Bob, then it's funny. If you don't know either one of those, it's not funny at all. And that's the power of context. And what, what, what we're going to talk about in this series that we're starting today is how important it is to read Scripture in context. I want you to know that this book right here, this Bible, is one of the most precious gifts we've been given. We have the actual Word of God, God's Word inspired by Him, truth without mixture of error, a literal love letter from Almighty God to humanity, the instructions on how to know Him, how to discover your purpose in life, how to experience eternal life in heaven and abundant life right here. It's all in this book. And we are some of the most blessed people who've ever lived because we have the freedom to buy it anytime we want. It's on sale online in a variety of stores. If you don't want to buy it, you can download an app to your smartphone. It's called Uversion that has literally every translation you can, you can name in every language you can imagine for free. I mean, students right here in front of me, y'all can carry a Bible under your arm on your school campus and no one can do anything about it. You have freedom to study it anywhere, anytime. We are blessed. It is a good thing. And yet, and yet, this book, the Bible, has also been used to justify every form of evil you can possibly name. People have used the Bible to justify atrocity in war, murder, slavery, genocide. If you want to name if you want to go down the list of the cults that exist in the United States today, everywhere from Jehovah's Witnesses all the way to the Branch Davidians and, and everything in between, most of them come out of some misinterpretation, some misuse of the Bible. So I'll give you just an example of a misuse of God's Word. When I was pastor of another church, we had a, a, a family in our church. It was a, a black man, a white woman. They had adopted a little boy who was of a different race from either one of them. And, and they were just the sweetest little family. I, I remember one day at the end of church, the, the music minister asked us to hold hands. So I, was, I happened to be sitting next to them. I held hands, I think, with the husband. And, and I remember thinking and telling Carrie later, I felt like one of those 70s Coke commercials, right? I'd like to keep, teach the world to sing. You know, it was kind of that, that, that beautiful little thing. And yet the wife told me many, many days later, she, she was talking about when she and her husband got married. She said, my mom, raised in the deep South, 
And she had a hard time with our getting married. She tried really hard to talk us out of it, talk me out of it, because she said, don't you understand that the Bible teaches that black people are inferior to white people and, and they're cursed to be that way by God? Now, where would she get that idea? Because I'll tell you, it's not biblical. There is a passage in Scripture, Genesis 9, and that's where that belief comes from, which, by the way, that belief was used for generations to perpetuate white supremacy and Jim Crow laws and things like that. Genesis 9 tells about Noah, fresh off the boat, so to speak, cursing his son Ham and Ham's son Canaan and saying, Canaan, you are cursed. You're cursed to be the slave to your brothers. That's where they get this idea. Now, when you read that story in the Bible, it's pretty obvious. They're all members of one family. It's not like Canaan was black and Noah was white. Probably, chances are, neither one of them were white or black. They were something, you know, Middle Eastern. But we don't know. We just know they were the same family, the same, uh, the same race. And the fact that the kid was named Canaan. We know the name Canaan. Canaan was the name of the people that lived in the promised land when the Israelites went to claim that land for themselves. Those were people who had sinned against God. They had to be driven out. Obviously, that's what that passage is about. It's not about racial superiority. So if you want to believe in something as ignorant as white supremacy, I can't stop you. Just don't blame the Bible for it. So that's an example of the kind of thing that happens. And those kinds of things happen all the time. When we come to the Scripture's knowing a little verse here or a small passage there. Or we come to the Bible saying, okay, this is the way I think. Is there anything, is there any way I can reaffirm the way I already think from the Word of God? And we, we misuse God's Word to perpetuate awful things. Now, I won't, the, the passages we're going to look at through this series, none of them are going to be as dangerous or destructive as the one I just named. But they're going to be things that people like you, good people, otherwise devout, Faithful Christians will quote, and it's obvious you don't really know what it says, what it means. And my hope is that all of us will learn to pay greater attention to what the Bible is actually saying. Here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want this series to leave you feeling like, well, I guess I'm unqualified to study the Word of God. I better, I better leave it to the professionals. No, that's the opposite of what I want. That's our problem is we've let other people tell us what the Bible says instead of doing the hard but necessary work of understanding it for ourselves. Listen, if you can read English, you can understand an English Bible, right? If you can read some other language, you can understand the Bible in your language. You don't need a seminary degree or a college degree or even a high school degree. You just need to be able to read. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you as a, as a believer in Jesus. You can understand God's Word. It just takes work, and we're going to show you how to get it done. So, so, Three questions before we get into today's scripture. Three questions that you should always ask yourself to make sure you don't take God's word out of context. Here's sort of the sermon before the sermon, and because I'm Baptist, it's got three points. You ready? So number one, question number one, what do the surrounding verses say? Always, always, always ask yourself the question, what is this really saying? What are the, what are the surrounding verses? Don't just take one verse and run with it. Let me give you an example of what I mean. 1 Corinthians 7.28 says, But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. <laughs> you think that would be a problem if you took that and wrote that on a card and gave that to your engaged friend and said, Hey, you know, God bless you on your wedding. Here's something from the Word of God, a little wisdom from the Lord. Well, yeah, 
Because they might read that, if they didn't know God's word, they might read that and say, oh my goodness, God doesn't want me to get married. God doesn't want anybody to get married. What have you been doing all these years? Why are we having these weddings? No, God does not approve of marriage. That's what it looks like if you take that verse out of context. But if you read all of chapter 7, you don't even have to know the whole Bible. Just read all of chapter 7. And it's obvious that God loves marriage. God created marriage. Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians 7, is in fact the same one who in Ephesians 5 says that marriage, that love between a husband and wife, is a picture of God's love for his people. So marriage is a beautiful thing that God created, that God loves and exalts. All Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, 28 is, if you are a single adult, don't let anybody tell you that there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. You are complete as you are. You are, a, you are made in the image of God. You have been given a purpose by God. And whether you marry or not, you can live a healthy, whole, fulfilling, meaningful, joyful life. Look at Paul. Paul says, look at me. I've got the gift of singleness. I can serve God in ways that married men can't because of my freedom to, to lay my life on the line without worrying about abandoning a, a wife and children. So singleness is not a curse. It is a blessing if that's what God has called you to. That's all this verse means. Now, the second question to ask, who was this written to? See, we make the mistake of assuming that the Bible is written just for us. And so we, we wade on into Scripture thinking, okay, God, I've got this question I need an answer to. Show me the answer. And then we take some verse out of context and go, aha, I should marry that guy, or I should take this job, or I should go to that school. And that's not at all what that verse is about. Or even, even worse, what we do is we come to the Scriptures and we say, okay, I, I'm looking for some fuel against this guy I don't like. I'm in an argument with someone and I want to find evidence that I'm right. But the Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. Every book of the Bible was written initially to an original audience. And you can't really understand the Scriptures fully until you first ask yourself, well, what, is, what did this mean to them? What was it trying to say to them? Because it's not going to mean something to you that it didn't originally mean to them. I'll give you an example. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 2. Ecclesiastes 10, 2 says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, and a fool's heart to the left. I promise you, I promise you with all my heart, no one who originally read that verse said, Aha, take that, liberal snowflakes. Because the idea, first of all, of liberalism and conservatism didn't exist 3,000 years ago. Second of all, the idea that conservative is on the right and liberalism is on the left. That didn't happen until the, the French Revolution, which is kind of an interesting story, but you don't have time for that. Now, my point is, you have to ask yourself, what did it mean to those people? When Solomon wrote those words, what was he saying? Well, in the ancient world, the right side was the side of honor. If you went to a party and the host said, hey, come sit here right on my right-hand side, that meant you were the guest of honor. If the king said, come and sit on the right side of my throne, that meant you were the second in command in the whole kingdom. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father on high. To this day, we shake hands typically with our right hand because that's a way of saying, I am honoring you. So what Solomon is saying is, if you pursue wisdom, you will be honored by God. If you don't pursue wisdom, you're not going to receive that honor. That's all he's saying. And you might say, well, Jeff, how would I know these things? I don't, I don't know what people were thinking 3,000 years ago. Well, I don't either. I have to do the work, and so can you. And let me just suggest to you that you invest in a good study Bible. And I know they're thick, 
and heavy, and I know they're costly, but I guarantee 95% of you spend more money in a week eating out than you would spend on one good study Bible that would help you to understand God's Word a little better. And even if you're too cheap for that, and I know because I'm a tightwad too, there are free resources on the internet. All you have to do is type in the passage of Scripture you're studying, and you will see a list of resources you can choose from. Do the work. Question number three. What does the rest of the Bible say? See, this is one of the beautiful things about this book. It was written by literally dozens of human beings over thousands of years in three different languages, and yet it is a united whole that agrees with itself. There is no contradiction in God's Word because God is perfect. And so, if you think a verse means something, but the rest of the Bible says something different, then you're wrong in your interpretation. I'll give you an example. James 2.17, I'm going to read this out of the King James Version. It says, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, if you take that out of context, that's the only verse in the whole Bible you know, it makes it sound like God is in heaven with a, with a clipboard keeping track of every sin you commit and every good thing you do. And if the good things outweigh the bad things on judgment day, you've got a good shot. But we know. We know that the whole Bible says something different. We know that over and over again, the scriptures tell us that salvation is by grace alone. It is a free gift. No one can earn it. And you receive it by faith. You don't receive it by, by crossing a finish line before all your friends or by climbing a mountain. You receive it by just simply saying, Lord, I can't do this. I cannot save myself. Please rescue me. And he does. And therefore, therefore the, the most superficial meaning of, two, of James 2.17 can't be correct. So what does it mean? It simply means that if you're saved, if you've truly received the grace of God, through faith, if you've truly been, become his child, then there will be works that give evidence of your salvation. In other words, a believer in Jesus will experience a change in the way they respond to other people, in the way they prioritize their life, in the way they think, in the way they talk. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. There will be works that give evidence of your salvation. And that's why, that's why, friends, I, I can't believe I need to say this, but I know that I do. If you are a Christian, at some point, you've got to read the whole book. You can't just rely on my email that you get every morning that gives a little verse of Scripture to ponder. I mean, I'm glad I do that, and I hope it's helpful, but that's not enough. It's not enough to buy a, a, a Bible study book or a, or a devotional book and just get this little snatch of Scripture here and there. You need to read Genesis to Revelation. And I know that's hard. I know that's, that takes a long time and a lot of effort. The first time I ever did it, I started when I was 19, and I wouldn't finish until I was 21. Yeah, it takes a while, especially if you've never done it before, but it is worth the effort. And by the way, that's why it's so important to be part of a small group that studies the Word of God together. That's why, that's why we emphasize life groups here in our church. Because as you study God's Word together, you're able to See some of your own blind spots when you hear someone else interpret God's Word or somebody else gently and lovingly correct you when you say the wrong thing. And that helps us to know what does God's whole Word say. And that's what we're going to do in this series. And I know some of you are going to get mad at me because I'm going to name one of the Scriptures or two of the Scriptures that you love and you quote and you put on your Facebook. And, and I'm going to say, well, it doesn't actually mean what you think it means. And if you're mad at me, that's okay. I can handle it. My point is, what the Word of God actually says is better than what we think it says. So let's start with that saying. As Nathan said earlier, God won't give me more than I can handle. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. 
God won't give me more than I can handle. Okay, is that biblical? That's what we're going to look at today. I've heard it even said this way. I know God won't give me more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't have so much confidence in me. That was actually attributed to Mother Teresa. I have no idea if she actually said it. I've seen it on wall signs. You know, those signs your wife buys and puts in the kitchen, live, laugh, love, or whatever. It's the one that says that. I've seen them on mugs, bumper stickers, etc. I think where that comes from is from 1 Corinthians 10.13. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So from that second sentence where it says, he will not let you be tempted, the word tempted can also be translated tested. He will not let you be tested or tempted beyond your ability. That's where we get this idea that God won't give us more than we can handle. So whatever trouble is coming our way, we say, okay, I know there's a limit to the trouble that's happening. I know that it won't won't push me over the edge where it's more than I can bear on my own. But is that biblical? Let's look at what the rest of that passage says, starting with verse 1. The surrounding verses say this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Does that verse, does that passage sound familiar to you? Please say yes, because we just got done talking about Exodus for the last two months. This is talking about Exodus. Paul is saying, think back to those people who were rescued from slavery. You, as Christians, you've been rescued from slavery too. They walked through the waters of the Red Sea. You traveled through the waters of baptism to signify your faith, your salvation in Christ. They ate from the spiritual bread, bread from heaven, manna. You too have been given the bread of life, Jesus Christ, free of charge. You didn't earn it. They drank from a rock, water that flowed from a rock in the middle of the desert. It saved their lives. You've been given the water of life, which is Jesus Christ, who makes your life whole and healthy and joyful and meaningful. And Paul says, you're just like them, but watch out. Remember what happened to them because you remember that whole generation, hundreds of thousands of people who experienced these incredible miracles, only two of them actually made it to the promised land. The rest of them died in the wilderness because of a lack of faith. He goes on in verse 7 and says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to the golden calf story that we studied two weeks ago. Verse 8, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Numbers 25 tells that story about how as they were traveling through the desert, some of the women of Midian seduced some of the men of Israel and they ended up worshiping the false god Baal and a a plague broke out in their midst. Verse 9 says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's a reference to Numbers 21. And then in verse 10, it says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a reference to Numbers 14 when the people of Israel made it to the edge of the promised land, to the other side of the Jordan River, but they refused to cross because they were afraid. You might say, well, how do you know these things, Jeff? Well, I don't. I had to look them up. And, And your Bible has 
cross-references in it. You might notice when you read your Bible, if yours is anything like mine, there's little small letters in there that are footnotes, and they point to something in the middle that tells you, oh, that's a reference to Exodus chapter 14 or Numbers chapter 25. Follow those cross-references. That gives new light to your reading of the Word of God. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So what is Paul saying? He's saying if it happened to them, it can happen to you. Now who who first heard this? Who was this written to? The church in Corinth, this city in, in this, this Greek city that Paul had planted this church himself. It had taken off. It had reached many people. It was, it was growing. In many ways, it was thriving. And yet, it was rotten on the inside. Because after Paul left, a group of people had taken control of the church that considered themselves super spiritual because they had certain spiritual gifts. Their attitude was, look, I can speak in tongues. You can't. Therefore, I'm obviously a better Christian than you are. Therefore, you should listen to me. God obviously loves me more, trusts me more. And Paul's writing to say, your arrogance is going to be your downfall. If you think that whatever your spiritual gift is makes you a better Christian than somebody else and that that you're not capable of stumbling, look at those people in Exodus. They experienced way more of God than you do, than you have, and they stumbled too. So take heed lest you fall. Now, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? Well, I want to give you three passages to look at. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What is it saying? It's saying every day God is there for you. Every day God is there giving you the strength you need to make it through that day. He may not give you any more than you need than, than, than you need for that day, you may have to come back out just like the manna in the wilderness. You may have to come out and get God's grace again in the morning because you're going to need strength for the next day. That's what it's saying. Verse Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. He's saying we have the privilege, us as believers, as, as children of God, sinful as we are, we can still walk right into the presence of God and say, Lord, I need you today. I've got something facing me that I can't handle, so please show up for me today. And then finally, the third one I want you to see is 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is actually part of Paul's testimony. This is what God said to Paul when Paul said, Lord, I am at the end of my rope. Show me what to do. Deliver me from this situation. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what does the whole Bible say? What is, what, is 1 what is 1 Corinthians 10 saying? Far from saying that God won't give us more than we can handle, the Bible tells us we regularly have more than we can handle. This world is more than we can handle. And there are frequent moments in life, in any life, when we are at the end of our rope, when we are brought to tears or brought to our knees, when we, when we are ready to give up and call it quits. And yet, The Bible says God is there. Call upon him. Boldly approach the throne of grace. When we are weak, that's when we're strong. It's when we think we can handle it that we're the weakest. 
So instead of, when you're going through tough times, instead of like so many good Christians saying, well, I know God won't give me more than I can handle, why not instead say, this is more than I can handle, but God is here for me. And I trust in him. He's big enough. God is bigger than our problems. To quote Veggie Tales, God is bigger than the boogeyman. So what does verse 13 actually mean? Let's go back to that verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That word temptation means the temptation to sin. Every single human who has ever lived, including Jesus Christ, has faced temptation to sin from the moment they open their eyes every morning to the moment they lay their head in bed at night. Every single day, there are temptations to do the wrong thing. And what what God is saying here is good news and bad news. The bad news is, you and I have no excuse. No excuse when we sin. There is never a moment when we can say, well, I know, but you should have seen the things she said to me. There's never a moment when we can say, I know, but but I, I didn't know right from wrong. Or I, was, I had bad parents and they, they didn't set a good example. Or the devil made me do it. Or you would have sinned in the same situation. No, we don't have an excuse. That's what verse 13 is saying to us. Every single time we're tempted, there is a way for us to choose right. And the good news, the good news is God is on our side. God is on our side. He's not like the professor in college who's trying to weed out the class. And he's hoping to fail people. We have this image of God like he's up there in the sky watching us carefully, waiting for us to stumble so he can zap us. I've got this new lightning bolt I want to try out on that guy right there. He's not hoping we fail so he can make an example of us. God is on our side. He is rooting for us. He makes a way in every temptation. Think about the intricacy of his planning that it takes for all the billions of people on earth and all the thousands of temptations every one of those people faces every day. And God takes the time to make a way out for every single one of those, including you. He is rooting for you. He is on your side. Growing up, my Aunt Paula was the varsity volleyball coach in my high school. She was also a science teacher. She taught me seventh grade life science, and then they promoted her. By the time I was a sophomore, she was my uh, biology teacher as well. Now, my Aunt Paula was greatly feared. She's a tall, athletic woman, and she was not a pushover in any sense of the word. All the volleyball girls I knew would tell me, oh man, you don't mess with Coach Berger. They were scared of her. They were just absolutely petrified. Not because she was a yeller, screamer, cusser type. She was not that kind of coach, but she just, she ran a tight ship. And in her classroom, it was the same way. I mean, let me just tell you, there is nothing in the world dumber than a seventh grade boy, right? Unless it's a 10th grade boy. And every boy in her class, and the girls too, they behaved themselves. I I, I never saw it in any other classroom. There were kids, there were boys I knew who could disrupt every class I knew, but not her class. And not because she ever raised her voice and never saw her get angry. I don't even remember her sending anybody to the the principal's office. It's just she had this look about her. And she'd give you that look if you were starting to run afoul and you would instantly just shut up because you knew, I'm about to be destroyed. I don't know how. I don't know what method my destruction will take, but it's going to happen to me in front of everyone I know, so I better just stop. 
And yet, when I was in seventh grade, in athletics, I, I fell and broke my wrist. And a few weeks later, I couldn't write, of course, because I had this big cast across my hand. And, and my Aunt Paula sat next to me during the semester test and said, okay, you point to the right answer and I will indicate it for you. I'll, I'll, I'll write down your answers for you. When I was in 10th grade in biology, we had a, a, an insect collection that was a major grade. It was the biggest grade of the spring semester. And I, being a teenage boy, and therefore, well, you know, um, I put off most of my work. And with like two days left, I had le under 50 points. And I was going to fail. And my life would be over. And so I went to her one day after, after school to just confess everything and just say, okay, here's what I've got. I'm sorry. And she looked at it and said, hmm, why don't you come over here? And I did. And there was this beaker of water next to a microscope. And she said, take a, take a dropper of water, put it on a slide and see what you can identify under there. And so I did. And I saw all these little organisms. And because I'd been in biology, I was able to identify them. And she said, just tell me what you see. And so I'd name it. And, and she said, write that down. And I wrote it down because microscopic bugs count too. And in the end, it was just enough to get me over the passing line. And I know that beaker of water was there for kids like me, right? Who came and said, I don't know what to do. I'm gonna fail. Here's my point. A lot of us think of God as being like Coach Berger, who's just, you don't mess with him. And we're right. God does not put up with foolishness. God does not, God does not let sin lie. But God is also like my Aunt Paula. He wants you to succeed. He is there for you. You come to him in your, in your time of pain, and what you're going to receive is grace. We will find mercy and grace for help in time of need. And that's what we can count on because the word of God says so. He makes a way for us in all of our trials and all of our temptations. He is there for us and he always will be.